Lord, we're thrilled to be called by your name. Thanks for meeting with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to talk about something this morning that's unpopular. I, I suppose it's probably the most unpopular uh, thing you can teach on, and that is uh, hell. Judgment, condemnation, whatever you want to say. We flinch or we shy away from the topic because it is so difficult, frankly, and so painful to consider. The truth is, though, that if you teach through the Bible, there's no way to avoid this topic. And while the word hell is not used in the passage this morning, judgment is judgment in the end, eternal judgment. Before we get into this passage in John 3, let me ask you a few questions. If you're a parent, have you ever told a child to stay away from a hot stove or maybe a barbecue grill? You tell them, you warn them, it's hot, stay away. If you touch it, you'll burn yourself. And you see them, or maybe you don't see them, but they go up and they touch it. And they scream and they yell and they burn their fingers because they didn't heed your warning. They failed to heed the warning and they paid with a painful experience. Or um, have you known someone who was a smoker all their life. And maybe family or friends warned them, you know, that smoking's no good for you. You really ought to stop. But over the years, they continue to smoke, and you know, eventually you hear that unhappy news that they've got lung cancer. Or have you known someone who's abused alcohol all their life, and their family or their friends or their physicians warn them, you know, you're headed for trouble. You really need to quit that bad habit. And they don't, and you hear eventually that they've got liver failure or kidney failure or disease, something along that line. Uh, warnings not heeded, ending in unhappy situations or circumstances. Perhaps more pointedly this morning, do you remember the story out of uh, Genesis 19, the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Let me just rehash this briefly for you. You remember that Lot, this righteous man and his family, have settled unhappily and unfortunately in the city of Sodom. And God has just told Abraham that he's going to destroy this wicked, wicked city and the wicked cities around it. Before he does, he sends his angels into the city to bring out Lot. And the angels say to them, hey, Lot, is there anyone else that's not here in the house, your daughters and your wife, any other family members that we need to get? They say, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, and he spoke to his sons-in-law, those who were to marry his daughters, and he said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be joking, bad joke. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city. In each of these, there's this warning, and there's a failure to heed the warning, and there are the unhappy but absolutely certain consequences that follow. For the child, the child fails to heed the warning and they burn their finger, or the smoker or the alcoholic fails to heed the warning to their physical detriment, the detriment of their health. In the case of those in Sodom, they failed. They spurned the warnings to the destruction of their bodies and their souls. In each case, adequate warning is given, but it's refused. 
in each case a provision for avoiding the pain, the suffering, the judgment, and the death is given, but it's rejected. When your child burns your, their finger or when the smoker or the alcoholic comes down with that disease, we don't rejoice over their, the fruit of their decision. We don't rejoice over the pain or the loss. On the other hand, we understand that in each case, the people involved were getting exactly what they chose. They were getting the fruit of their own decided and often consistent decisions. They could not blame others for their pain or their unhappy consequences in any of these situations. They were warned, but they rejected that warning and that consistent rejection plunged them into the inevitable pain, loss, and destruction. We're in a passage this morning, John 3, in which we're talking about not just temporal pain or disease or loss, but eternal life and eternal death. We looked at John 3.16 last week. I'm actually going to proceed reading from that verse. We'll read through verse 21, and I'm adding verse 36 because thematically in John 3, Verse 36 closes this section that we'll look at this morning. Starting at verse 16 in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. He who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son, in obedience here is faith or belief, he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him. Now, just like verse 16, verse 17 tells us why Jesus Christ came into the earth, and it gives one specific reason why he did not. He came into the world to save the world. Jesus came to the world to save the world. He did not come, John 3, 17 tells us, to judge the world. He came to save the world. Paul states this a little differently in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved. Jesus came to the world to save the world. The reason for the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection was salvation. It was not judgment. It was to save. It was God's rescue mission. Salvation and not judgment was the reason Jesus came into the world. Having said that, Jesus came to save. 
we cannot escape the issue or the element of judgment or condemnation related to his coming into the world, and it's for this reason. If God goes to the trouble to save us from our sin and we reject his provision, our rejection confirms our guilt and leaves us with the fruit of our own decision. God has gone to the trouble to save. If we refuse salvation, we confirm our guilt and we remain, as John 3.36 says, under condemnation. We start there. It's not a question of where we're at. We start there. We live there until we believe. Look, if you will, at verses 18, 21, and 36. Look at the common elements of those who benefit from Jesus' rescue mission. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. There's no judgment left for those who believe in Jesus Christ. There's no condemnation left. We talked about this last week. When your sins are forgiven in Christ, God is free to lavish on you his love. His mercy is grace. This is his heart towards mankind. It is salvation and it is love. First John says God is love. And for those who believe, there's no judgment left. There's no wrath left. There's no condemnation left. God is free to pour out on us his love and grace and mercy. In verse 21, the one who practices the truth comes to the light, that is to Jesus, the light of the world. And then in verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5, 24 later will say, we've passed out of judgment into life. That's why Jesus came. Look at verses 18, 19, and 36 for those elements common to those who do not benefit from Jesus' rescue mission. Verse 18, he who doesn't believe has been judged already. Their failure, their rejection of faith in Christ is their condemnation because he has not or will not believe in the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19, if we ask the question, why would men refuse Jesus? This seems like a no-brainer. Why would men refuse salvation through Jesus Christ? Verse 19 says, because they loved darkness more than light. They prefer sin to salvation. They prefer darkness with judgment to light with salvation. To those who refuse the immensely costly provision for life that God has provided through His Son's cost at His Son's expense, the Father is unapologetic. They don't have life. They have death. They refuse the only means of deliverance or salvation. They can expect only judgment. Judgment or condemnation is all that's left. There is no middle ground. Judgment is not the reason Jesus came to the earth. Salvation, deliverance was the reason for his coming to earth. But judgment is the unavoidable fruit for all those who reject God's means of deliverance. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, heaven is man saying to God, your will be done. And hell is God saying to man, your will be done. It is the choice, in other words, who's choosing. So that ultimately this judgment, this condemnation, we can experience this to some degree in life, but ultimately it's eternal separation from God and Christ and all that's good. Paul states it this way quite graphically in 2 Thessalonians 1. 
he's talking about the second coming, and he says in verse 7, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not cleaning up their lives. This is simply believing. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the power and glory, or excuse me, from the glory of his power. Leon Morris is a commentator who has a key commentary on the Gospel of John, and he says this about this passage in John 3. He says, John is not saying that God has decreed that people who do such and such things are condemned. It is not God's sentence with which he is concerned here. It is not judgment per se. He is telling us rather how this process works. People choose the darkness and their condemnation lies in that very fact. They shut themselves up to darkness. They shut themselves up to darkness. They choose to live in darkness. They cut themselves off from the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Immersed in wrongdoing, they have no wish to be disturbed. They refuse to be shaken out of their comfortable sinfulness. They reject the light that comes to them and set their love on darkness, thereby They condemn themselves. People prefer darkness to light. It was not forced on them. They themselves chose darkness, and in that lies their condemnation. They chose darkness. In that lies their condemnation. Why do we refuse Christ and salvation? John says at verse 19, because we love darkness. Paul says it a little different in Romans 1 when he says what was known about God was evident. God made it plain. But what did men, what do we typically do with that truth? It says we turn from it. We hide it. We push it under. We don't want it. In John 18, uh, this is graphically portrayed in the movie The Passion. Jesus stands before Pilate. And during part of the interrogation, Pilate says, So are you a king? Jesus says, I am, and for this I have been born, for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Anyone who wants the truth, they listen to me, Jesus says. So that, verse 21 in our passage, if John, if a person is seeking truth or light, God says they will come to Jesus, the light of the world. For them who reject Jesus, the light of the world, there is only judgment. So then in the end, all of us will get what we choose. We will get what we choose. We will be left with the fruit of our own decision. We live in a very muddle-headed, very poor thinking culture. And you will hear many people today say, that a loving God would not send anyone to hell. That a God who is love, John says God is love, would not send anyone to hell. This is incredibly shallow thinking. This is incredibly simplistic thinking. And think about this through this process with me for just a little bit. If God was willing to pour out his divine wrath on his own beloved son so that sinners who were at odds with him, his enemies, could be saved, 
Why would he turn around and denigrate his own son's offering by accepting sinners apart from Christ's costly suffering and death? How could God offer his own beloved son if it was not absolutely necessary for our salvation? And if it was absolutely necessary for our salvation, how can he accept sinners apart from that offering? Do you see this? This is cold, hard, I don't want to say logic. This is a brick wall that you cannot get around. The incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection are the stop sign to poor thinking and to fuzzy heads and to muddled thinking. They simply, it will not wash. It will not wash. Uh, Think about this. If there were any other way for God the Father to save you and I, why would he send his son into the world to live this dusty kind of hole? It's a glorious place on one hand, but it's full of sin and death on the other. Why would he send him down here? Not only in incarnation, but in suffering and death, if it was not absolutely necessary. Why would he do that? In fact, I would go so far to say as God is a sadist and a masochist, if he sends his son and punishes himself in the separation that occurs during the crucifixion, if there was any other way to save us than that. In fact, do you remember in Matthew 26, and and again, very well depicted in the movie The Passion, Jesus, the, the Last Supper is over. He and his followers, the disciples, have gone over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember what happens? In the garden, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Father, he's facing his impending suffering and crucifixion and death, cut off from the Father on the cross. Father, if there's any other way for us to save mankind, tell me now. Let's stop this train I know where it's going. If there's any other way, bring it up now, please. Father, if there's any other way we can do this thing, we can save mankind other than what's facing me tomorrow, speak now. In verse 42, he went away a second time, prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. The fact is, there was no other way. If there was, the father who delighted in his son would have provided it. Jesus, in Matthew 26, asks the father to provide another way if it's possible. And there was no other way. It was impossible any other way. And the son goes to the cross for you and for me. Any other way, it would have been found. So come back to this. Would a loving God send anyone to hell if God did not spare his only beloved son in order that we who were his enemies could be saved? Why would he withhold judgment from his enemies who refuse his only beloved son? Indeed, push this farther. If he was willing to punish his son to save us, you can bet he's willing to punish his enemies who refuse his son. Take it one step further. If he had to punish his son to save us. He has to punish those who reject his son. There's no way around this. Fuzzy thinking and soft feelings cannot get around this. The crucifixion and resurrection is the end to muddled thinking. 
John closes up this passage thematically in verse 36 when he says, this is the, this is the theme and this is the end of all of chapter 3, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. The only requirement for life is to come to the Son through faith. It's to believe. There's no work on our end. We accept what Jesus did for us. He who does not obey the Son... And obedience here, again, is only faith. It is only believing. It is not cleaning up our act. It is not becoming a good and righteous person. We bring nothing to the table. It is believing in Jesus. That's what brings about life. To refuse to obey, to refuse to believe, is to remain under the wrath, the righteous, holy, just condemnation of God. To the one who will obey by believing, there's eternal life. God is free to lavish his love, his mercy, and his grace on us. To the one who won't obey by believing, there's only God's judgment and condemnation left. Christian evangelists were lampooned in the past, if you remember. Uh, This isn't talked about so much because hell is not preached on much anymore. But Christian evangelists were lampooned in the past as narrow-minded, mean-spirited, hate-mongering people who delighted in the thought of people going to hell. There may have been such evangelists around, but you know, if you read the Puritans and the folks who were involved in the Great Awakenings in England and the United States who preached on this subject of condemnation, of doom, of eternal judgment, these were not hateful, mean-spirited men. These were gracious, loving people who were absolutely convinced of the truth of the scriptures and the reality of the impending judgment that faced those who refused God and his salvation. They were the beggars who found food and were turning around saying to someone else, there's bread here. They were people who, as it were, had seen the brink of hell and known that God had saved them through Christ and were turning around and were in essence holding up warning signs. Don't go there. I had a brother who has died and his early view of the gospel was God was saying, love me or I'll throw you in hell. That is this kind of character, evil, small-minded caricature of a loving God. I told my brother John, Uh, That is not the gospel. The gospel, Jesus says, is I've been there and you don't want to go there. So take my hand, I'll set you free. That is the gospel. And those evangelists who preached on hell and warned people in the past days, they weren't hate mongers. They were loving people who wanted to see Jesus' rescue mission honored in the lives of the folks they taught to and they preached to and they spoke with. He's been there, you don't want to go there and trust yourself to him. And in that sense, they modeled God's key character, love. But they did so by erecting the warning signs. There's a cliff ahead, dangerous curves, judgment is coming. Believe and be saved. 24 years ago, before Kathy and I were married, I lived in Washington State, just off the coast, Uh, Willapa Bay, Bay Center, no one knows the names of these places, but anyway, right on the coast of Washington, I was helping my older brother Joe build a house, and we lived in a little trailer there on his lot. We lived right off Highway 101. And on Sunday, May 18, 1980, 
I had driven into the little town of Bay Center. I'd taken an old friend for a drive. We saw the woods and all and came back, dropped him off at home. And I got to come back out on the highway. And Highway 101 in this area, there's very little traffic. Highway 5 from Portland goes straight north, and that's where everyone goes. Highway 101, very little traffic. This day, full of cars going back and forth. Do any of you know why this date is significant? You will in a minute. I'm wondering, what is going on? What is going on? What is all this traffic on my little stretch of Highway 101? What is this about? And I, I got home, and I went into the trailer, and I turned the radio on, and I found out why. Because Mount St. Helens had exploded. We lived about 80 miles as the crow flies from Mount St. Helens. And we didn't hear anything, you know, short term, we didn't see anything, but Mount St. Helens at 8.32, I think it was that morning, had exploded. Over the next few days, even where we lived with the prevailing winds off the ocean moving from west to east, we got this fine, extremely fine, powdery, brown-gray ash, dust really, that coated everything that was outside. It was a minor nuisance. It was nothing more than that for us, again, because we were west. If you remember, though, going east, Washington State was dumped on. This was like a heavy snow, only it was gray and brown ash, volcanic ash. It dumped six inches and more across the state. It was devastating. It was incredible. Um, This event was coming for a long time. This wasn't a surprise. They had known, everybody that was involved in this had known, this volcano is going to go. We don't know when, but we know that it's going to. It's not a question of if, it's only a question of timing. The explosion is going to happen. So because of that, the government had evacuated. They, they forbid anyone to go up into the park areas that were on the, the mountain. And they warned everyone on the mountain and everyone around that mountain. They said, get out, evacuate, because this thing is going to blow up. And of course, it did. Let me give you some, uh, just some facts related to this explosion. This explosion that was coming, not a question of if, only when. Uh, Mount St. Helens, which was gorgeous. This looked like Mount Baker and Mount Rainier, if you've ever been up to that area. It's just an incredibly lovely area. And this was a snowy, peaked mountain, quite lovely. Its elevation before the explosion was 9,677 feet. Its elevation after the explosion was 8,363 feet. It lost 1,314 feet of elevation. The whole top of the mountain was gone from both the eruption and the landslide. 23 square miles of land was missing from the volcano after this thing blew. 23 square miles of land was gone. The eruption created the largest landslide in recorded history, traveling 150 miles an hour down the side of the mountain. The blast, and if you remember, I've seen pictures, this thing didn't just go up, it went out. The north side of the volcano blew out just like the top blew off. So from the north side of the mountain, it swept out at over 300 miles an hour, and it created devastation 17 miles away from the crater, from the mountain peak. Temps there were over 660 degrees Fahrenheit, 24 megatons of thermal energy when this blew. The snow, the lovely snow that had capped this mountain before, turned to steam and then to water, 
forming large mud flows that destroyed 27 bridges, 200 homes, 185 miles of roadway, and 15 miles of railway. This ash cloud from the explosion rose 80,000 feet in 15 minutes, and three days later the cloud from the explosion had reached the east coast. 7,000 big game animals were killed. These are obviously rough estimates. 12 million salmon. Untold millions of birds and small animals died. Besides the animals, 57 people were killed as well. Now, because this wasn't a question of if but when, the government, as I said earlier, had gone and they told everybody, you've got to get out, get off this mountain. And obviously some people did not. Among those 57 deaths attributed to the eruption, there was one that was by far the best known. Do you guys remember who I'm talking about? Wouldn't remember his name, but Harry Truman. Mr. Harry Truman. Harry Truman had lived 50 years on this mountain. He was 84 years old. And he owned a lodge at Spirit Lake. And he, like everyone else, had been warned, Harry, get off the mountain because it's going to go. And Harry refused every plea and every entreaty. Harry and his 16 cats and 18 raccoons. His wife had died, and no doubt for Harry at 84, maybe he felt like, come what may, whatever, but he refused every plea to leave. In fact, he said he did not believe that the volcano would be able to harm him where his lodge was located. Harry said, I'm good to go. The thing may blow, but I'm okay. It won't harm me where I at. And so he stayed at his home, stayed at his lodge. He made his choice, and the volcano did blow up, of course, and Harry, of course, was killed. There was not only nothing left of his cabins, his lodge, to look for Harry. That whole area was buried in 600 feet of ash and dirt. Harry Truman got what he wanted. He stayed home, and he died. Now, forget whatever other motivations there might have been for Harry. If I was 84 and I thought, I don't care if I live another day, maybe I would have stayed there too. But but forget those things for a minute. How easy would it have been for Harry to have lived? How easy? Got in his car, drove down the mountain. Coons and cats with him. Wouldn't matter. Would have been easy. Harry, all you got to do is drive down the mountain. It took a purposeful, repeated choice for Harry to end his life in the destruction of the mountain. How rational does it appear for Harry to have stayed there? Harry, all you got to do is just drive down the mountain. Why would you stay, Harry? No matter, Harry got what he wanted. The judgment on Jesus Christ at the cross was beyond our ability to understand. We've talked about this a little bit. Many, many men suffered crucifixion and the physical brutality that accompanies crucifixion. No one else, though, has suffered God's wrath as an offering for sin. No one else had been in the fellowship of the Father from eternity past and was cut off from his Father other than Jesus Christ. And that is a cost that, thank God, we will never, anyone who's trusted Christ, be able to comprehend. Thank God. But the judgment on sinners who refuse Jesus' offer of salvation dwarfs the destruction of Mount St. Helens. And the certainty 
of God's judgment on those who volitionally, repeatedly refuse the salvation he's offered in his son is more sure than Harry Truman's was living on the side of Mount St. Helens. Words like judgment, condemnation, hell, eternal punishment, these are awful words. I told Kathy I had no pleasure in teaching this morning because of the subject. If you think about this, this thing is so hot, we can't handle it. This thing about humans being separated from Christ and God and all that's good and all light forever, it's, it is beyond, uh, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, no matter what. But God says this is the way it is, and Jesus died so we don't have to go there. It's a painful thing to discuss. Passages like John 3, just like the government on Mount St. Helens, they are warning signs. They are warning signs. Like the volcano blowing up, God is saying danger, judgment is ahead. Danger, condemnation, eternal separation lies ahead. Those who would paint God like they painted the evangelists of former centuries, hate-mongerers, mean-spirited little people, they don't know God. They don't know God. I'm winding down and closing with this verse out of Ezekiel 33:11. This is God speaking through Ezekiel to Israel, and this is what he says, Say to them, as I live, and God does live, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In another passage in Isaiah, God says of judgment, of condemnation, that judgment is God's strange work. It is a, an aspect of his character that is not most typical of him. He does it and he does it well, but it is not what he's characterized by. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Or in John 3, that the sinner turn to Christ and believe. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die? Here's God saying to the world today, I've sent my son, my one and only beloved son, to take the penalty for your sins. Why? Why will you die? Why will you choose death? Jesus came to the world to save. It was a rescue mission. He came to the world to save. If we reject his means of salvation, however, there is only judgment left. It is inescapable. We're going to have the Lord's Supper during uh, worship time this morning. And as we do, remember to thank God that Jesus took the punishment due you and I, and thank him for that again this morning, that the father was willing to give his son, that the son was willing to take the penalty, do you and I, and ask God this too, excuse me, God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, ask God to save the folks around you and me. You remember, he said through Paul, God desires that all men would be saved, and God uses Christians, those who have come into his family, to tell others to put up the warning sign on one hand. Don't go there. He has, and you don't want to go there. And also to tell them the upside. Rejoicing, joy, pleasures forevermore, light and life. 
So think about that. Thank God during worship and thank Him and ask to be His instrument of salvation in the lives of those around you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck again by a hard passage that makes it absolutely abundantly clear that in you there is life, eternal life forevermore, and that, Lord, to reject you is to choose death, eternal death, separation from you now in time, eternal separation from you in eternity. Lord, we would not wish that on anyone. And, Father, I know that Jesus has come to save Lord, we thank you and we rejoice in the salvation he has brought to us. Help us to be your advocates in a holy and helpful way in warning those around us of the fruit of rejecting Jesus' offer of salvation. And help us to describe to them the fruit of salvation in life and joy and peace saved from on one hand, Lord, and save to another. Lord, I know that the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's the middle of all history of time and eternity. It marks all things out, and it's in relation to that and to the person of your Son, Lord, that we are destined for joy and life or condemnation and death. Lord, use us to say to those around us, choose life. Honor your Son in us, Lord, and through us. In his name we pray. Amen.